0: Hey guys, John Paulemy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, July 16th, and this is the weekly market update. Um, The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I cannot give you personal investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money, it's your responsibility. Uh, Before we get started, a few housekeeping items uh, and a short comment uh, about the future of the newsletter. Um, First of all, if you like these videos, if they give you value, if you enjoy them just from entertainment purposes, whatever, uh, it helps if you would like the videos, share them, comment. The algorithm picks up on this and it's helpful to uh, dis, it, it helps the algorithm determine that it's popular and it presents it to other people, helps the channel grow. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say is, you know, the reason I do these videos, I'm not going to be shy and and tell you that I'm doing this as a public service. Uh, this is a, you know, loss leader to introduce you to my thoughts, uh, the way that I approach uh, investing and speculating and entice you hopefully over time to think that I might have some good ideas. And that you would uh, consider taking a subscription to my newsletter, uh, which is the actionable intelligence alert newsletter, some of the people on here that come to uh, have subscribed, we've had, you know, some pretty good growth in the in the newsletter. And so if that's something that you're uh, interested in, you can go into the show notes, there's a link there that will take you to a uh, website where you can subscribe. It's uh, 12 issues a year. They're pretty substantial. I feel like I do some decent research. Uh, other people have said some people like it, some people don't. We also bring up, uh, I bring up uh, stocks uh, that can, and originally the theme was to find very highly speculative, high beta type situations. That's what people wanted, right? They wanted to you know, give me something that's going to go up. So um, I did take some criticism from somebody recently that said, You know, I talk about things that I do in my personal portfolio, but I don't share them in the newsletter. Well, that was because the newsletter wasn't set up for that. Most people that are on the internet looking for investment themes, unfortunately, many in many cases want something, you know, they've been so, a lot of younger guys, shall we say, have been... um, uh, socialized to the fact that, well, Bitcoin having the huge, you know, cryptocurrencies having the big bubble, they've came up in the context of a financial bubble, and so when they see these big moves in these stocks and these companies in high tech or in crypto, they think that that their expectations are skewed, shall we say? And as I've pointed out before, you know, the top investors in the world, you know, if they beat the market consistently over time, I'm talking about, you know, Buffett and these type of people, if you, like I've said before many times, you can go to the Berkshire Hathaway um, annual reports and the first page shows you the annualized returns for the, for Berkshire Hathaway since the inception. And uh, I think the overall net asset value growth or returns are somewhere around 20%. Uh, combined annual growth that's averaging in all the up and down years. So, you know, my 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 situation here with the newsletter, I was trying to find things that were, um, that was what the market was. People wanted that. So I'm going to start adding more event-driven type situations. Like there's a situation, what do I mean by event-driven? You know, Buffett talked about that if he wasn't running such a huge fund, he could very easily get 50% plus returns a year. And so there are situations that come along throughout the year where, for example, uh, one of the ones I'll highlight in this next month's newsletter is there's a company that, for example, is going to be bought out by another company. Uh, they own a bunch of apartments. They also, that, that's already said, it's like, you know, so many dollars a share, they're going to give. So you're going to get your money back there. But they're also going to spin out a, a, a spud, a stub, if you will, that um, uh, has like 34, 3,500 single family homes. That's not going to be part of the deal that the acquirer is taken. So they're going to spin the 3,500 single family homes that are being rented out into a stub for shareholders. That stub is currently being valued or shows a a, a a value of around a dollar eighty a share, but the net asset value of those homes is around probably five or six dollars a share. And so when they, you know, when the deal gets consummated and goes through, you'll get your original uh, capital back, and then you'll have this stub uh, that is potentially undervalued that will revalue hopefully and then you you know conceivably have a 50 to 100% return or whatever it ends up being 30 50% return so those are like special situations that I get involved with also and I'll start highlighting more of those i mean tracora was kind of one of those situations we had in the portfolio where we had a undervalued company that was being pursued by private equity it didn't get us the return that we wanted it was still a positive return i think it was around 17 or 18% but if you know if you can hold a position for you know six months or a year and get you know 15 percent gains, like say something closes in six months and you have a fifteen percent gain, that's a thirty percent gain annualized. So these are the kind of things that I'm going to start adding. Things like this, I'm going to start adding some of the uh, companies. We're going to have several undervalued investments in the in the um, portfolio that nobody is really interested in. But I'm going to add more because I, I did take the the criticism originally, I kind of reacted to it, uh, you know, and just said, you know, if you don't like it, I'll refund your subscription or whatever, something like that. But when I thought about it, I was like, okay, I do talk about these things. Some people have expressed interest. So I'll start adding some of these things to the portfolio, which makes sense in this context because now the market's correcting and some of these things are, uh, come back in value and, you know have the opportunity to be purchased at a lower price, excuse me. <clears throat> so expect to see that in the, in the newsletter. The other thing is we have the Patreon support. Some people choose to support us on Patreon. There's some confusion around this. If you support me on Patreon, I really appreciate it. If you, you know, cause anything helps. I mean, I have costs, obviously I have research costs. I have other costs. Um, nothing's for free. So some people choose to do that. Uh, You can turn it off and on at your leisure. But as an incentive for you to do that, I will give you the most recent pick in the newsletter for free. That's a one-time deal. A lot of people seem to get confused. They think that if they join the Patreon and they will get every pick when it comes out. Now you get a one, the most recent pick that's in the newsletter just to kind of show you and give you a sampling of the writing that I do. So I wanted to talk about those two items, Uh, you know, uh, obviously that's why I make these videos, to expose people to my thinking and my philosophy and my thesis and some of my experiences. And if people are interested in how that translates into actionable intelligence, that's what we call it the actionable intelligence newsletter, then like I said, you can go down into the show notes below and uh, take a subscription. All right, let's get into this week's Market update. So we had the uh, CPI this week came out, and the official CPI. You can see it here, uh, going back to nineteen eighty two. I got this from U.S. Global Investors. Actually, I would recommend that you subscribe to the uh, the guy who runs U.S. Global Investors. His name is Frank Holmes. He's actually a pretty interesting guy, and. U.S. Global Investors, based in San Antonio, by the way, It's a fun company does makes ETFs, but they put together a lot of good data, and they have this the CEO puts out uh, Frank Talks, I think it's called, every week, kind of does a SWOT analysis, and they have a lot of good graphs like this one. So it's like, okay, this week the CPI was reported as nine point one percent, but you know, there's been many commentators. I, I fall into this group. Uh, I believe this also. There's been a lot of shenanigans with redoing the calculations of how CPI is calculated over time. And so if you look down here on source, you'll see one of the sources is shadow stats statistics, shadow government statistics. This is a guy that's been around for, I don't know, decades. I think his name is John Williams. Anyways, what he does is he takes the numbers... For economic statistics, he's famous for the CPI, and he calculates it based on the methodology they used in 1980. This is the time period when we had the last inflationary episodes before all these hedonics and all these uh, shenanigans were inserted. And there's a reason why, you know, you know, show me the incentive, and I'll tell you the outcome. Well, the incentive to play shenanigans with the CPI is because of cost of living increases for. Veteran pensions, Social Security recipients, all types of other things that the government has. So they have a, they are incentivized to have a lower CPI, if you will, lower cost of living because it lowers the cost of the government on COLAs and things of this nature. And so what Mr. Williams does, I think that's his name, is he calculates the CPI based on the methodology used in 1980. And so based on his calculations, the actual CPI is 17.3%. And this makes more sense to me. Um, When you go and you look at the everyday, and I'll show a slide on this also, where people are getting really like pressed hard now with price increases. The things that you need to live are really, really, really increasing in value. I mean, I go and pick just a few things up at the grocery store the other day, um, and I'm kind of price insensitive to things, but I do notice... I mean, two plastic bags of stuff was like 60 bucks. It's like, you should be able to fill up the cart for 60 bucks. And I'm not, of course, I'm not living on chicken thighs and rice and beans, but, you know, can I, I can't imagine like having a family. I can't imagine being a low wage worker. How are these people surviving? How are these people living? So, um, this is something to be cognizant of, I think. And why is this? Because. It's going to feed into what well, I'm going to get into an update on the thesis later on after a few more slides. Uh, I'll let you know why this matters. So here's Liz Ann Saunders. She's the chief uh, economist, I think, at Charles Schwab. says, uh, consumers stress to the max among staple areas for consumers, inflation is soaring at fastest rate in history, above 30% year over year. And so this goes back to like 1941 after the war or during the war. <laughs> And you look at uh, even in the 70s, we're, we're approaching, this is, this is getting out of control. And this is the primary, if you look at the recent Monmouth polling that was done uh, for Americans coming up to this congressional election, the major, I think it was 30, a little bit over 30% of the electorate is mostly concerned with inflation. Because they're seeing it in their lives, right? They're seeing it in their trips to the grocery store or their trips to the pump. Now, granted, the oil price is coming down. I suspect that, you know, CPI is a lagging indicator. A lot of commodity prices have come down, but it takes a while for uh, these price decreases to work their way through the economy. And so that's one of the things I'm forecasting is going to happen, but it's not going to happen maybe as quickly as a lot of people think. Regardless, this is is really eye-opening again it goes back to how are average people normal people working class people dealing with this and they are very very upset about it from what i from my just anecdotal pursuit of looking at things so i think this gets better but the anger you know the election's only three let's see it's july august september you know three and three and a half months from now and uh It's not going to, the pain, the resonance of this episode is not going to dissipate by that election. Let's put it that way. And so here's another thing. So this is one thing that I want people to be cognizant of. I don't know the future. I don't have a crystal ball. Another commentator made the comment to me, you're always trying to hedge your bets. I'm not trying to hedge my bets. I don't really know what's going to happen. We are in such uncharted waters. Okay, so I'm not flip flopping. Okay, what I'm saying to you is I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't know if Jerome Powell is actually going to follow through and try to be the reincarnation of Paul Volcker. I doubt it. And I'm going to show you why. But that doesn't mean he's not going to surprise everybody and crash the economy as he raises rates to crush inflation. I don't believe the political will is there to do it. I don't think the economy can handle it. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they're going to reverse course much sooner than people think. That's my thesis. That's where I'm operating from. But I'm telling you the other side of the story here also, okay? Uh, And I can't put a percentage on it, but I want you to be aware of both sides of the story. You have ultimately, as I said in the start of this, every week, this is not investment advice. I cannot tell you what to do. I'm trying to provide information. I'm telling you how I think about it. I'm telling you how I'm reacting to it. But that doesn't mean I'm correct, or you should do what I say. If you want to take what I say into consideration, I want to bring up other other perspectives, the other side of the coin, if you will, and then you have to make your own view up. If you're, People have asked me, and I refuse to do this because I don't know. I'm telling you I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know. Even PhDs at the Fed don't know. I cannot tell you with a great amount of certainty what's going to happen. We have so many plates in the air with the war going on, the geopolitical situation, situation here in the U.S. politically and economically, a lot of things that are not consistent with what we've seen in the past. Yes, there are some things I'm going to show you that are consistent, but there's other outliers that can come in to change what we have seen historically. So we're dealing with probabilities, okay? There's been many times where I've had, i thought I've had the best hand in a poker game and somebody pulls something out of their backside and that can happen, right? Nothing's a hundred percent in this game, certainty. And if, if some people will say, well, that's a cop out, that's them. Then you tell me what's going to happen. And w- in the comments, and I'm happy to have a discussion with you, point out something, you know, that I don't know. You don't, I'm not saying that I'm a hundred percent right or that I am right about what's happening. What I'm telling you is is what I'm trying to assess this information and and, and formulate a probability or a view of what's going to happen. And you have to take into consideration not just economical things, historical context, the economic context of the current situation in the U.S., the political dynamic, which whether people like it or not, they don't seem to like this, but it has a component. You don't think that, you know, Biden... uh, doesn't want to see the Democrats get wiped out in November. They're trying to do everything they can in their mind that they think will work to get the price of oil down to try to get inflation down. I mean, it's not going to work like they think, in my view. But that's what they're trying to do because they want to stay in power, and they know that the people, you know, 32 percent of the people have the ma- has the cost of living and inflation as their major political. Thing, they're going to go to the polls and take it out, whether or not it's his fault or not. This is how things work in the real world. The situation with the energy situation in the world was set in stone well before Mr. Biden was ever elected. But he's there now. Those other people aren't. And that's the reality that people don't seem to get. The Democrats are there. They're the ones that are perceived to be in power. They're the ones that are going to take that the hoi polloi, that the mob is going to throw the tomatoes at. Whether whether you like it or not, that's how it is. Whether it's fair or not, this is not how things work. So anyways, getting back to the slide, you can see how things have plummeted. You know, the US dollar is making like decades highs now, highs we haven't seen. So this is really negative for commodity prices that are mostly priced in dollars. You can see that these things are going to begin feeding through. Um, lumber down 58%, nickel down 54%, aluminum down 34%. Natural gas, uh, these are from recent peaks down 31%. Steel down 28%. Wheat even down 28%. Zinc, lead, the whole shebang. Um, oil is only down 30%. It's actually down more than that now, in my view. Uh, I don't know when this was calculated or what the, but it's down about, oil's down about, I mean, from its recent highs during the invasion, 130 to 100. I mean, what's that, 25%? It's 20 25%, something like this. So Um, these things will start feeding through. Now it's not just commodity prices that affect CPI. You have other things, you know, I've pointed out in previous videos, used car prices are now collapsing. You're seeing, seeing more and more news come out about how real estate prices are rolling over that will eventually be reflected in a lower component of owners, um, uh, what's the, can't remember, owner's rent or whatever that's calculated off real estate prices. That's a major component of CPI. So what I'm suggesting to you is, you know, these things, CPI is a lagging indicator. Um, a lot of people are already saying that they think it's going to roll over. Now, my thesis is, is that we're not going to see CPI get back down to 2% or lower. Um, what's going to happen is the economy, I believe, is in recession already. It's in a manufacturing recession. That's going to manifest itself, in my view, as a earnings recession. That's going to be reflected in even lower stock prices as we go through towards the end of the year. And at some point, you know, we're going to have a major bust on something. Something's going to break that's going to cause the Fed to panic. Uh, it very literally could be the EU or emerging markets. We're seeing that already, right? We're seeing the emerging markets and now the EU unrest develop. It's only July. I mean, we've talked a lot about Sri Lanka, but Ghana is in the same situation. We've seen riots in Peru. We've seen riots in a lot of other developing countries. Um, I suspect as we get further into the rest of this year, um, we're going to see some more, you know, if the dollar keeps going up, Um, even at these levels, it's going to crack these emerging markets. Why? Because they have a lot of dollar-denominated debt, and there's a shortage of dollars. That's why the dollar is going up, right? Um, People are fleeing the EU. They're bringing assets to the... People are fleeing these other places uh, with their capital and bringing it to the US, because the US is perceived as being the less dirtiest shirt in the hamper. And so people, when you bring euros here, you have to buy dollars. And this is, you know, this there's a dynamic of interrelationships between currencies and interest rates that I don't have time to get into. It's very complex. There's plenty of videos online. There's plenty of books about this, um, but that's suffice to say, that's what's happening. And so what happens is, is if you have emerging market and you, for example, you have commodity prices going down and say that's your, one of your major exports like Indonesia or the Philippines or these type of places. Um, and you're exporting a lot of commodities, they're going down in price, yet the dollar's going up and you have dollar denominated debt that you have to pay. Um, it gets more expensive, it can cause a crisis. We've seen this happen before. I saw it happen before in the late 90s in the um, Asian cri- currency crisis, uh, where a lot of countries got extended the dollar you know, crack. So I don't know where the cracks are gonna happen. Um, it could happen here in the U.S. We have a lot of zombie companies, I've pointed out more than once, that spreads on junk bonds continue to go up. They pulled back in the last week or two, but they turned back up. And so, you know, if Mr. Powell says that he's going to continue raising rates until, you know, like he's voker until something breaks, I suggest that when something breaks, they'll, they'll turn. But like I said, these things will start feeding through um, services, though. Are still going up. That's another component of CPI. And so I, I don't think we're going to get back down to 2%. You know, when something breaks in the economy, um, then or the world economy or financial markets, seriously, then they're going to reverse course. That's what they do. And maybe, maybe you're only at five or 6% inflation. And I think the Fed would call that a victory. Like I said before, if they, if they, if, if they start to see headline CPI rollover, they're gonna. I feel like they're gonna pause. They want to pause. They know how much debt there is. They know how much risk is out there. And so they're 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 like I said before, they are selling this narrative now of the soft landing. You remember last year. The the story that was being sold, the narrative was, um, inflation is transitory, and that we had to tear that script up and throw it away. And I think this year's. Bogus script is going to be the fact that you know we're going to get a soft landing. So uh, the, the 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 data is not showing that. I mean, I'm not an economist, but things do not look good. Do I? I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if they what's going to break. I don't know when they'll pivot. But I think at some point they have they will. And some people have said, well, before the end of the year, the the interest rate futures. A lot of the indicators people use are showing rate cuts in first quarter of 2023. So we'll see, but this is what they will do because this is what they always do. But I want you to remember that, you know, a lot of things that contribute to CPI have already made major uh, decreases. And so this, this is what I'm talking about. So this is the U.S. Empire State Manufacturing, new Orders six months ahead. This goes back to one- Takes into consideration the tech bust, the great financial crisis, and here we are. This is the New York State basically uh, new orders for the six months ahead. Uh, it's an index that shows basically new orders for the next six months, and you see that we are at, we're getting down to levels that are consistent with major problems in the economy. But the thing that you need to note is, is this rebounds very quickly once uh, you know. I'm not saying we're going to just go down here and stay down here and go to the to the right. Um, we're getting down to levels where you know, it becomes a problem for the economy, and we've seen shifts in monetary policy in the past. That's what I'm going to point out. We're not at the beginning of this recessionary situation. We are in the later later innings, in my view, uh, of when monetary policy is going to shift. This is what the pickle that the Fed's in, because now you have headline inflation at 9%, 9 9.1, and what's actually higher, and yet we are seeing economic conditions that are consistent with the great financial crisis and the tech bust. We're almost there. We're heading in that direction. And so this is the bet. This is what you have to consider. Um, And I got this from Luke Groman, who's a commentator. Um, I think this was on Twitter or in somebody else's presentation, but this is what I was talking about before several weeks ago. you know, Jerome Powell's out there saying he's going to do whatever's necessary to deal with inflation, yada, yada, yada. You know, they say a lot of things, watch what they do. The problem here is, in my view, is that when Volcker was raising rates, the total federal debt as a percentage of gross domestic product was, you know, less than 40%. Okay, debt, the debt wasn't A big problem. The federal debt wasn't a big problem. Corporate, I'm not sure about what corporate debt was, but debt in the country was not, you know, the, the, it wasn't going to break the system. Okay. When they took rates to, you know, 12, 15, whatever it was, 18%, I can't remember off the top of my head, it was outrageous. But you look where we're at now, where the debt, and look what just happened after this, you know, after the COOF, after the pandemic when we created all this money and handed it out and how we increased the debt from, you know, basically hundred percent of GDP to well over a hundred, almost 140% of GDP. Um, the economy can't take, you know, take rates that need to be high enough to really, you know, deal with the inflation. You've already seen it. What's happening with the economy. It's pulling back. now that's not necessarily because of, Just because of monetary policy, there was a, you know, forty percent of all the, you know, money that was created was created in the last several years. This had a, you know, this had a big effect. And so when you stop the stimmies, when you stop the monetary policy, obviously you're going to have, you know, coming off a sugar high. If you give a kid three Twinkies and a bottle of knee high orange, he's going to bounce off the walls for a couple hours, and then he's going to collapse on the couch and sleep. So it's kind of the same situation, right? Where we're in a situation where we created all this demand, we pushed all this demand forward, we forced all this money out, people spent it. Um, whether that was the correct thing to do or not, I'm not gonna have that argument here, but you can see the sugar high is over with now. And so now we're having to deal with this inflation because we have so much currency units chasing, you know, not the same amount of goods, then you get, you know, higher prices. And, you know, the problem is, is can Mr. Powell be the, incar- the reincarnation of Volker? I don't believe he can. And I think Luke Groman makes a pretty good comment here that's uh, appropriate. You know, it's like Powell's belief that he still has a choice of being Volcker instead of Arthur Burns. Now, Arthur Burns was the Fed chairman before Volcker, who uh, basically did things like, you know, um, cutting rates when inflation was high. And I, and I had some other slides for that, but I, I'll save those for another week. But it was kind of shocking what went on. And I think that's something that's going to happen this time. You know, this idea that that Mr. Powell is just going to keep raising rates and doing QT until inflation rate gets down to 2%. I mean, the economy will collapse. It'll go into a deflationary depression, and you'll have major problems. You know, remember another thing about the federal government. As the economy begins to slow, uh, you have entitlement programs. You have certain programs that are on the books that are economic stabilizers, like food stamps and all these other things that people will start applying for. And you have less less tax revenue coming in, yet you have uh, demands for more spending. And I'm qu- quite sure that the Congress, if the economy starts rolling over, I mean, we're in a, you know, definition of a recession is two quarters of negative GDP. I think we're going to see that there'll be calls then for some somebody to do something, and you know, so where is this money going to come from? And not to mention the fact that the federal government's constantly having to roll over its debt, and as it rolls over its debt, it's going to be at higher interest rates. And so that's the problem. It's not like some commentators say, well, we have $30 trillion in debt, and if they raise rates, it's going to bankrupt the country. It would over time, as those old bonds mature, and a lot of them, some of them will have to be refinanced at higher rates. Some of them we're still, you know, redeeming bonds that were issued at you know 15 or 16 percent in the 80s. Okay, those are finally getting off the books, most of them. And so it just depends where you are. So long story short, with this level of debt, I don't think that we can take the type of rate increases that it would take to get the inflation rate back to two percent. The other thing that's interesting to know is we had like the first month of QT quantitative tightening, right? And it really didn't. The Fed really didn't pull its horns and I think they were supposed to do, I don't remember how many billions, but it was only like 1.9 billion or something like that. So more shenanigans going on. I mean, say one thing, this is what I was saying, you have to watch what they say or watch what they do, not what they say. So this quote, let me finish this quote that Luke Groman had. Powell's belief that he still has a choice of being Volcker instead of Arthur Burns is the Fed chair version of me thinking I can be LeBron James it simply isn't going to happen. This is all rhetoric. This is all trying to manage expectations. This is jawboning. We've, we've seen this time and time again. The Fed has one blunt instrument. They have this 20-pound mall that they can swing of interest rates, and it cannot be used for every single nuance. And so I think they're going to find themselves in a situation where, yes, I think inflation will come down. We're going to be I think this decade is going to be like the 70s, 60s and 70, late 60s and 70s were going up until the early 80s, where, yes, we had periods of inflation, then they would raise rates, but they would never be able to get the inflation rate fully down. Then they would have to reverse policy because the economy was falling apart and the political demands on the Fed to do something were there. And so they could never really get the inflation under control. Yes, it would vacillate between, you know, but it was always at a higher level it stayed at a more like you were running this temperature that you couldn't get rid of, You could never get it down back to normal. And that was because of the great society demands of the great society spending, poverty spending and that with the Vietnam War. And so obviously we have other spending priorities nowadays, but you know, we just do not, we're in a pickle here. And I just don't think I think this is a lot of bullcrap talk, you know, because what else is he going to say? You know, we can't really do anything about this. You're just going to have to get used to inflation. But I mean, they're not going to say that. So, um, and we've seen how fast Mr. Powell can change his colors, like one of those lizards that changes his colors. You know, remember 2018? I think it was 2008. Was it 18? When we had the reversal that was almost instantaneous. Um, they started raising rates. The economy started rolling over. The market started rolling over. And, and almost immediately, the Fed. Uh, Switched gears and started printing money. They have no way out of this. Okay. We are at the end game that a lot of people have talked about. Now we're going to have these a lot of volatility in the markets because of this. And we're also going to have a lot of volatility in the economy with a lot of vacillations between, you know, periods of sediment towards inflation and then periods of sediment towards deflation. And then you're going to have the extremists on both sides, you know, um, David Rosenberg, that. Inflationists on one side, and then these other inflationists on the other side, constantly feeling like they're right, and they will be right. it's for some periods off and on. And that's why I'm thinking, you know, the nimbleness you're going to need is going to be, you know, necessary for these periods. So I hope that wasn't too confusing, but that's what I think is is going on here. And I think this is one of the main reasons why I think that we just don't have the room to raise rates to the necessary levels without completely causing chaos in not only the US economy, but the world economy. I mean, they got to do something about this dollar pretty soon, it's too strong for the rest of the world. It's a problem. Now I've heard some of these people commentators, you know, well, they're doing this deliberately to crash the Euro and deal with the Davos crowd and all these little, I don't know, I, I don't think it's as sophisticated personally. I don't find these people to be that sophisticated and smart like some master plan I just think that they are running this thing in 15 minute ahead increments personally, and uh, they just don't want it to fail on their watch and they can sail off. So what well, was fine when I was there. That's what Bernanke did. That's what Greenspan did. That's what Yellen did. And that's somebody else's problem. That was fine when I was there. I don't know what they're doing now. That type of attitude. I had it. You got it. So one of the things I want to point out is, you know, these gray areas of recessions, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the oil price. I am too. This shows you uh, different periods of, an, of recession and how far the oil price can fall. And typically, you know, the oil price can fall anywhere from, you know, 30 to 70 or more percent during a recession. Now, I think we're in a recession. I think oil prices have pulled back. I think there's room for them to pull back some more. Um, I don't know, though, because here's what's on the other side. We have this war going on. We have the, the the ESG mandates stopping a supply response. We have a lot of things. So this, this is what I think, you know, you can get these big drops like this in the, in the oil price, but you see how they come back very quickly. Um, they don't just come down, stay down. Um, so yes, we can have these intermediate, these drops over d- during a recession. I believe we're in a recession, uh, but we have some things going on that I think are gonna mitigate this. I don't know if we've, if the what's the new floor on oil with the ESG and the lack of investment over the last 10 years, what's the new floor? Is it 40 bucks? Is it 50? Is it 80? Is it 65? I don't know. Um, do I think it could head lower? Yes, I do. Uh, but you know, at some point, you know, you have a lot of plates in the air. You only have until October and then the S- the million barrel per day SPR releases stop. So then you have to go find another million barrels a day. You have this sanctions on Russia and its oil, uh, which uh, go into effect at the end of the year for the European Union. You have, again, the lack of spending. It's just spending is just not ramping up around the world like it needs to. So do you get in a situation where, you know, what I think is going to happen is maybe it bleeds off over time. The inventories are still very, very low. Um, They're not where they need to be. Do I think that demand is being affected? Absolutely, if you're spending all your money on, you know, you, you know, the economy is definitely slowing down in the US, um, like I said, we're in recession, but you gotta have to understand that demand, demand and supply are not historical. That doesn't say that this time's different. I mean, obviously I think the oil price peaked at $130 a barrel recently. I don't think that that's gonna be the all-time high. I think the all-time high gets broke this decade. But just be aware um, that, you, you know, if you're holding oil stocks, like the oil services stocks, I mean, a lot of these stocks are already, if you sell them now, I mean, you've sold them where they're discounting $50 oil or lower. Um, if we do get down to $50 a barrel, like if we have a 2008 type GFC situation, then, you know, it doesn't stay there long. And so... I, I don't see that happening, but any, anything is possible. Um, I don't want to just talk my book and make excuses, but you know we could see a lower oil price over time until what I think will end up happening is these com- commodities will drift lower. They will be at a higher level than they were in the past during their previous pullbacks, during these economic pullbacks that we see during recessions, like copper in the same boat just like I pointed out in that other chart, nickel, all of them, but they're all in deep supply demand issues. And so when you're in a situation where people just sell, sell first and, and, and ask questions later, you're in a liquidity environment, you're in a sediment where everybody feels we're going to be in this recession, people are trying to figure out what's going to be the 2008 Great Financial Crisis or a Worldwide Depression, you hear that all the way to you know a mild or normal recession. There's all kinds of views out there. The bottom line is, for me, is that you've already discounted the pullback in oil prices, oil stocks is already discounting $50 a barrel oil. I mean, do you want to sell now? And then when do you get back in? I think what will happen with a lot of these things, this is why I'm putting together my, You remember, we sold gold stocks a couple few months ago. And I think that was a good call because we're just you know drifting around that 1700 level. Gold stocks have been completely massacred they have been destroyed. They have been taken out to the woodshed. But I think what happens, you know, we got out of the copper, got out of the base metals. What I think, you know, and that oil is kind of holding in there a little bit, but it's drifting lower. Um, maybe it has a full on collapse. Like I showed in that one, I think I got a slide coming up. Yeah. Um, let me show this slide. You know, this is what, I saw on Twitter, are we facing this type of situation where we go all the way down to, to you know this low? Very possible. Does this look like a double top? Yes. I mean, do we go down to 80, 60, 40? What's 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 the low? How bad is this recession? Is it better just to sell now and ask questions later? Very possibly. I mean, that's for your individual thinking on these things. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but this doesn't look good right here. This looks like you know, a hundred dollars was the, uh, you know, this is a double top basically. So, um, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, one thing that somebody did say that, uh, uh, in a podcast that I kind of liked was the problem people get into like Eric Nuttall and Josh Young and these guys is they count barrels and you can't do that when you get in these type of situations because, um, it doesn't take much on the supply demand front. And plus remember, liquidity and sediment is another situation. So I'm not selling, I mean, there's a lot of barrel counting going on um, with inventories and things like that. But if we are in a situation where we're gonna be in a very deep recession, the oil price will come down. That's what I'm trying to say. But at some point, the Fed is gonna reverse course and all of these commodities in gold are gonna scream higher. And I think you will be able to see that. Uh, that will be telegraphed by a lot of these things. They'll start catching a bottom. They'll start, you know, I don't know if this thing's going to free fall and then reverse or if it's just going to start, you know, carving out a bottom some point. But uh, this is a lot of air under this. So um, something to think about. Uh, again, some people could, I could be accused of saying, you don't, you flip flop. Why are you o- owning oil stocks if you think they're going to go down lower? I don't know if they're going to go down. I don't know if the war is going to expand. I don't know what the sanctions will do. I don't know, you know, you know, you still have to deal within the context of this of uh, the fact that there's no investment, in really super increased investment necessary to increase oil supply. And so at some point, you know, even though we have we're, you know, the the time to sell was probably when they initially started talking about Raising rates just to get out of everything and just sit there. Okay, that's why I'm rereading Martin Zweig's book, Winning on Wall Street. I think that's what it's called, and about monetary policy and how it affects stocks. And so, but right now, when it's discounting fifty dollar barrel of oil, the stocks will they go lower? I don't know. Probably. Uh, am I that worried about it? No, because I know what they're going to do. So, do they cut rates in November? Do they start reliquify in the first quarter of two thousand twenty-three? I don't know but I do know when they do that, all this stuff's going to scream higher. And then you're still right back to the problem that you don't have enough investment. You have not made the investment. So if you're a trader, if you think you can trade around that, maybe you can do that. I can't do that. That's the problem. I know what the long-term supply demand, lack of investment thesis is. And if this stuff drops, I have a lot of cash on the sidelines. And once I it start, starts becoming apparent to me that it looks like the central banks are going to reverse and reflate, then I'm going to be in there buying. I don't think it's time to be buying now, but uh, I've actually put some of the oil stocks, I think most of them in the portfolio on hold. But um, I'm seeing, you know, I mean, even at $60, $70 a barrel, you got to remember this last year and a half or so, a lot of these companies, most of these companies have generated tremendous cash flows and lowered their debt profiles, such that um, they, uh, they can survive, you know, a period of lower oil prices. So it just depends what you think, um, how you assess things, but, uh, we'll have to watch this. Like I said, if you're a trader, um, you know, this, this is not a positive chart. This, this does not look good. So, uh, difficult to say, um, it needs to hover around this hundred dollars a barrel and make a base here. Uh, but, uh, We'll see. I mean, right now, I think on Friday, Brent was 102, so it's popped back up. So I don't know if that's the level. Maybe that is the level where it kind of finds, finds its foothold. I don't know. But when you have you know 60-plus central banks around the world raising rates, you have the European economy is basically collapsing. I mean, it's going to collapse. It is going to be in a depression. It's in a depression. I don't know how they think they're going to get out of this. They are, I'm going to show you a chart that's just damning for what's gonna happen in Europe. It's going to be chaos. And that's a market with 450 million people. So uh, I don't know, we'll see. But uh, this is, uh, we'll have to see if history repeats or not. Again, um, here's the 10 year uh, break evens uh, for treasuries. They seem to follow each other. It looks like, you know, we're seeing where this is showing you that, you know, anticipating uh something's not right here you have a big big uh dichotomy if you will a big uh and again you see this big double top in here so either these rates need to come back up or um, oil needs to come down and this is getting oil down to you know somewhere in the neighborhood of in the 80s currently This is what this is showing. So I don't know if that's where we're headed, but uh, again, this is another ominous chart. Um, Again, some more historical narratives here. You talk about a um, yield curves, inverted yield curves, the two-year versus the 10-year yield spread. Typically, when you have these yield inversions means the two-year is higher than the 10-year. Uh, that usually means you're in a, you know, in a recessionary environment. It typically happens after these rate increases, yield curve inverts, and then you have a recession. And then again, they start cutting. You come out, um, and so every time that uh, you get these inverted yield curves, you know, uh, eventually the the Fed pivots and goes through another rate cutting cycle. You see again what we've shown in the past is that it seems like as we go through these recessionary periods, the fed is not able to achieve the, the the rate increases, the level of rate increases nominally seem to get, uh, lower and lower over time. That's, that's that the reason why is because of the debt, the debt in the economy does not allow it to, uh, get back to, uh, levels of, um, interest rates that would be necessary to clean out all of the it's that forest analogy right not able to get rid of the underbrush you don't get rid of it all and it starts to accumulate over time and that's how you why you have these financial crises. and the economy is just so fragile and overall weak and so much malinvestment that it can't withstand very high interest rates or so many malinvestments so many businesses that are on life support will just you know blow up and then you're into a you know Massive unemployment, deflationary depression, that type of thing, and that's just not going to work for anybody in policy policymakers or people in in charge. So, always be thinking that yes, there'll be periods of deflation. uh, I think over the next decade, but I think the bias is going to be towards inflation and inflationary monetary policy. So, this is one positive that I wanted to talk about. This. Something not to forget. You remember back, even last year, I was talking about um, the Chinese were tightening monetary policy. They the credit impulses were going negative, and how commodities followed that lower. Um, one of the things I want to remind you of and bring to your attention is what a large consumer of a co- of commodities. China is for many commodities. They are the dom- China is the dominant player in the market. They're the dominant consumer, um, and so a lot of focus. Not as much focus has been. Some I would say, I guess, uh, for commentators. One of the plates that's in the air is the Chinese economy and how it's being affected by the pan- the COVID lockdowns they're having there. The zero COVID policy that China has instituted, which depending on which media source you follow or day of the week seems to relax and then tighten, relax and tighten. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they're trying to achieve there. Um, You're not, I think it's been demonstrated that you're not going to get zero COVID situation. I mean, it's a respiratory virus. It's going to spread, but I don't know what they're doing. So anyways, they're going to react like they typically do, which is now you have the, Party Congress, I think, coming up in October in China, where Xi is trying to get his third term. Uh, he does have rivals there. Obviously, it's not like it's a dictatorship where he just runs everything. There is a whole bureaucracy. There are other factions in the government that want power, would like to get power, that are at odds with Xi. And so here's what we have happening here. We have China ready's $1.1 trillion uh, to support Xi's infrastructure push. This is what they do, right? They just go out and just spend money to get the economy going and to get people employed. So what's this a Bloomberg article from last Wednesday? China is making 7.2 trillion yuan, which is $1.1 trillion in funds available for infrastructure spending a decisive shift away from a focus on controlling debt towards supporting a lockdown ravaged economy. The figure refers to government-backed funds and is based on Bloomberg News analysis of official announcement. It includes an unprecedented 1.5 trillion yawn of special bonds mainly used for infrastructure that local governments may be allowed to sell in the second half of this year, according to people with knowledge of the discussions. And so we've reported on this before. There's other things going on. There's other stimulus packages being put together. Um, so we need to keep this in the back of our minds also, I mean, we're not aligned now with the monetary policies and physical stimulus policies of the West and China now. And so what effect will this have on commodities? How much has China destocked or stocked during the last year, we don't know. But as they ramp up infrastructure spending, obviously that's going to be good for steel, iron ore, copper, the demand. So again, you have to ask yourself the question, as this ramps up this demand, will it offset the decline in demand of the West, Europe, who knows, but this is something that's happening that you have, again, more plates in the air, you just can't make uh, generalized statements. And when somebody says, well, you know, you seem to flip flop or you, well, of course, I don't know what's going to happen. It's just telling you another data point. So you have to keep this into the context of what's happening. But in the past, we know that this has had an effect on commodity demand uh, and resource prices. And so again, you know, as we talked about, we showed this chart, we showed this how the credit impulse M2 was going down over the last couple of years, a year and a half in China. This had a, you know, depressing effect on commodities, on uh, resource prices. But you see what's happened since late 2021 and into this year, we see this surging again. So, this is in the this is the credit impulse accelerating M2 accelerating uh, in the context of the physical spending. Uh, this is going to, in my view, have a effect on um, on uh, resource prices. Again, will it be enough to offset what's happening in the West? I don't know but like i said we're further along into our rate raising cycle than many people think um like i said you, you look at the headline numbers they're going to roll over in the next couple of months inflation i think you see a pause even on a pause stock market in the us is going to rip um but we don't know what's going to happen you know and then if they actually get into cutting rates in the first quarter of next year forget about it okay you're going to be inflation back on, inflation uh, risk assets back on. So that's my, that's my operating thesis. How far does everything drop in the interim? I don't know. And will this be enough to offset that drop? I don't know. I'm just pointing these things out. We'll just have to watch the, the data. Um, and so I wanted to talk about this because I think there's something happening over time. This is, uh, as you well know, Nord Stream 1 is shut down for maintenance one of the things that's been happening in the background there this is the one of the major gas supply pipelines to germany one of the background stories here was the siemens gas turbine that was sent to canada that runs one of the compressor stations or powers one of the compressor stations i explained this before that there's compression stations along the pipeline any pipeline. To keep the pressure up so the gas will flow over long distances and so this turbine was sent to Canada ostens- ostensibly to be overhauled or had maintenance done on it and then because of the sanction regime that was placed onto Russia by the west Siemens Canada wasn't going to allow or couldn't allow because of the sanctions the return of this turbine and then the Russians were saying well if you don't allow this then we can't guarantee prices Let me be quite honest to you what is happening, in my view. This is very important. The screws are being tightened on Europe, okay, on this whole conflict in Ukraine. And a lot of people don't want to like what I'm about to hear. Uh, I follow this very, very closely. Many, many uh, channels. Uh, I don't say this to rub it in, but a lot of people were wrong on this. Ukraine is losing terribly. Uh, you know, ever ever since the Lizzie Chance Sever Donetsk collapse, now Donbass, Siversk Sv- is be- falling. Now we have the Russians advancing on Bakhmut. Now I'm seeing reports of T 90s and the Terminator APCs being moved up to the front. These are regular Russian forces now being moved in. Um, the situation with the armed forces for the Ukrainians is not good. Um, Putin and the Russians recently had meetings, and what I think is going to happen, and this does tie in, so please be patient to this whole situation, and a lot of people in the West don't like this, but this is my view on my analysis. They're going to take the rest of the Donbass after this uh, siversk bakhmut defense line collapses, which it's in the process of doing. The next line will be the Slaviansk, Kramatorsk, and you can look on the maps, I should probably show the maps when I'm talking about this, will be the fallback position where defenses have been pre- been prepared by the Ukrainians, but nowhere in the context of this war have the Ukrainians shown that they can withstand uh, the you know, order of battle that the Russians are unleashing on them, roll up to Ukrainian static defenses, pound them with artillery and rocket attacks, until they're demoralized destroyed degraded and then roll in with infantry and tanks and then the Ukrainians leave or they retreat before and you know there's if you go to like military analysis channel he does a daily thing the guys in Belarusia, he doesn't really ha- take a side he just tries to report from many sources he speaks russian and Ukra- and i think he also sp- understands ukrainian so he gets sources he tries to balance everything you know he talks about the individual battalions and brigades that are being i mean you have what the Russians are facing against some of the Ukrainian brigades are at like been degraded by, you know, 30 to 50%. You cannot function as a military coherent military unit. When you have been, you've degraded a unit by 50%. It's just not possible. And again, it's about logistics. They don't have any fuel. The ammunition is short. Guys haven't eaten for days. We see this when prisoners are captured. Um, what's really going on there is no relevant ukrainian air force anymore the russians have up their uh, sa- salvos of these rockets i mean the last week or so i mean the russians have unleashed literal hell with these precision cruise missiles and guided missiles okay and it's taken a huge toll and basically what the russians have said is when they take donetsk they what i think they're going to do is they're going to offer terms so we need to renegotiate. Uh, we need to negotiate the terms of surrender. It'll be the same thing that they've said before. Um, recognition of Donbass and Lugansk. We're not going to return Crimea to you. The territories that we've taken in Zaporozhia and Kyrgyzstan will not be returned. No NATO, no EU. Maybe they don't care about EU, but no NATO ascension. Basically, security guarantees for Russia. This is something that NATO and the EU has already rejected. And so have the Ukrainians. And the reason that the Russians will put it in this context is so I think they have determined that they are not going to get a deal. So the operation will continue. The peace plan, the negotiations we put forth so that it can allow politically for people in China and India and these other people that are ostensibly on Russia's side to at least say, okay, you see we offered them terms they rejected them. We have no choice but to continue, and so they will continue. And I think they're going to up the game. Um, if you saw what the Serbian president said this week, and maybe he's just talking out of his backside, but uh, he said that you know Serbia and Russia are very, very aligned, uh, going back many, many, for decades and hundreds of years. Actually, common Orthodox faith, common semi-common Slavic language, things of this nature, um, but the Serbian president basically said that you know once Donetsk, the Donbass is taken back, which it looks like it's in the process of happening more rapidly, seems to be accelerating, um, that if the Ukrainians don't agree to the terms that will be put forth to them, then hell's going to be unleashed, and that's what he said, not what I'm saying. So. What I think part of this is going to be, but this time you'll be into the fall and possibly the winter. And I think you're going to see the Russians basically almost probably start shutting down the energy supplies to Europe under these type of situations, under the cover of this. Well, we couldn't get the compressor back or we have maintenance issues because of the sanctions. And so we're having to slowly reduce. They've been slowly reducing the supply of energy anyways. Okay. And I think that's what you're gonna see. And this is gonna put even more pressure I mean, I don't know what these people in Europe are thinking. They have, they are so politically invested in this, they cannot turn back, or they'll lose, they'll lose their positions of power. Now, this is in my mind evil. It's short-sighted. It's not in the best interest of the people, but they're not in power for that anyways. They're in power for their own gain, for their own selves, and so this is what I think is going to happen. Um, I think the, you know, the Germans are already still. Uh, they're drawing out of reserves gas now that they need for the winter to use in the summer. Um, this is going to, this is going to get ugly unless somebody steps up and be as a leader and says, all right, that's enough. Uh, this isn't going to work. we got to come to terms. We've got to cut a deal, but I just don't see anybody on the bench in the EU or in any of these European countries, especially in Western Europe, that is going to step up. I mean, you're saying protests now, farmers protest, not only in the Netherlands, the, f- I saw it on Twitter this morning. People are protesting in France. Just like I said, the summer protest season's ramping up. Farmers in Spain, farmers in Germany, farmers in Italy. Mario Draghi just resigned in Italy, okay? You're seeing these governments starting to come apart at the seams. More chaos is building because people's standard of living, people are, now a lot of people are still at the beach, right? There's a lot of summer vacations going on. People haven't fully focused, but it's coming. The winter's coming. And I think as part of the overall plan, you know, I think the Russians have pretty much given up that the EU and the Europeans and the United States are not going to negotiate this settlement. And so I think what's going to happen is that the operational tempo by the Russians is going to be increased and that will include uh, this type of situation of, you know, I mean, I mean, I would have shut the gas off the first day. I mean, that's me, but uh, I would have brought them to their knees right then. But, you know, that's what I would have done strategically. I think you'll start seeing, at, to this point, you haven't seen the Russians attack infrastructure in Ukraine. I, why wouldn't you blow up the power plants around Kiev and Lvov? That's what I would do. Um, put them in blackout, okay? Um, start attacking them economically um, like that. I think you're going to see that ramp up. I think you're going to, that's what I think, by unleashing hell. Because... I think, unfortunately, for the Ukrainians and for their European sponsors in the U.S., they have no reverse gear, as Alexander Marikoros on the Duran says. I think it's probably the best description of these people. They only know how to ratchet it up, and then they can't back down. And I think that uh, the economic consequences for Europe are going to be devastating. I mean, we're talking like, you know, you see the euro now at parity. Um, I show you the economic statistics. It's going to collapse if they don't come to their senses. And I don't think they will. Uh, And you're going to see the you're going to see governments be overturned, you're going to see all kinds of chaos. Um, It's just not going to be good. So again, if you're talking about the oil prices, a side note, I don't know, maybe, you know, with the Europe going into a depression, economic depression, economic chaos, I don't know what that's how that's going to affect things. But anyway, that's what I foresee happening. This is like, a little bit of what, how I see it's going to go down. And so I hope that was, you know, I know a lot of people are, are emotionally invested in this. I don't know why you are, if you're not Ukrainian or Russian, or if you don't have anybody there, if you're not attached to it in any way, why you would be emotionally invested. But some people have chosen to do that. And uh, I, I'm seeing the interest go away because no one likes to hitch their wagon to a loser and they're losing. And uh, that's what's happening. And it's not going to change. Uh, the wonder weapons are not Wunder weapons from the West and, you know, General Steiner is not going to show up and relieve them. It's just not going to happen. And uh, it's a lot of bloodshed. You know, you're into the Volkstrom stage of this war where the Ukrainians now are just rounding up old men. They're actually recruiting women now. This is just getting terrible. So anyway, uh, I think this is just another example of this. And what do I mean? Well, lack of gas, this is uh, from Twitter, Somebody did an analysis. It's not just going to be heating and hot water and inconvenience for people in their apartments. Lack of gas will destroy the German economy. Uh, Let's go down the list, right? Uh, Without requisite gas, the glass and glassware manufacturing capabilities of Germany will decrease by 47%. Pig iron and steel down 34%. Ceramics, processed stones, 32%. Food, drink, and tobacco down 32%. You know, you just go down the list, chemicals down 31%. I mean, the chairman of BASF, I forget how to pronounce the name of the huge chemical complex. It's in Germany. It employs like 40,000 people. A whole city's built around it. They say they may have to shut that thing down. And, you know, this is what's going to happen, okay? And I will tell you that it will not recover from this. Now, some people have said, some commentators have said that Mr. Hobbick and the Greens are... They're fine with this because they want to de-industrialize Germany because they are so wedded to this green ideology and this view that they have about industry, you know, destroying the environment and all this, thing, that this is not a problem for them. But I will tell you it will be a problem for the German people. I'm getting more and more emails and direct messages about people, and maybe these people are self-selecting because they watch these watch this channel and maybe they their views are more conservative or right wing I don't know I would like to hear a lot of Germans have contacted me and people are getting worried about this and getting upset the thing that they also mentioned is the majority of the people in Germany are just not paying attention to this yet they just do not believe that this will happen and what I would like to hear from is somebody that disagrees with me that says no you've got it wrong John I'm a German and this policy is going to work and we will we will overcome this. And this is the right thing to do for European solidarity, the EU project, and democracy in Ukraine. I want somebody to come and tell me that, and why they believe that, and why they think that. You know, the problem is is that these decisions were made over a decade ago to wed themselves, Europe, especially Germany, to cheap energy inputs from Russia, and now you just can't shut them off at, and not expect to have. Uh, catastrophic effects. That's my view. Uh, That doesn't mean I'm pro-Russia. That's just reality. And I don't think people are living in reality. People are skewing their views based on their ideological uh, or just almost a fervent religious belief, pseudo-religious belief in what they think is the right thing to do. I'm a pragmatic person. I'm looking at the overall good. Uh, I wouldn't want to lose my job if I worked in that chemical complex for BASF because we don't have gas in, because I know that once we shut that unit down, we may not ever bring it back up again. And is that worth it for me and my family? Probably not. So I thought this was shocking. And so I would like, you know, I appreciate the people from Germany that have reached out to me. Um, people in Germany, a lot of people have told me that it's not easy to speak out about some of these things. Uh, you take some risks doing that. But like I said, somebody that's on the left, or somebody that's a green voter, Green Party voter, or somebody that's a true believer, Mr. Hobbick and Mr. Schultz actually, you know, have Germany on the right, right path. I'd like to hear from this person. You know, reach out to me or in the comments and tell me, tell me where where I've got this wrong and, and how this is going to work out because I don't see it. Again, I do not see the plan. And this could this this could be this. There is no reverse gear unless the people go in and throw all these people out literally. And I'm talking about, you can't wait for elections at this point. You almost have to do it like Sri Lanka. I mean, this is not going to end well. I do not see how this ends well for the European Union. It's just not going to work. Uh, There's not sufficient replacement fuel inputs from the rest of the world in the time necessary to offset the Russians just shutting off all this stuff. So. Long story there, but uh, I think it's very important because I just think this is going to play into the overall, you know, uh, economic situation. So here, here's where we go. I don't know if these things are true. I put these anecdotes up here, and I don't mean to keep picking on Germany, but you know, it is the, it is the leader of the EU economically and in many respects politically. And so here's what we see in Germany. They are planning on setting up warming rooms where people can come and warm up for a few hours because they won't be able to keep their houses warm due to the energy crisis. I mean, I don't know if that's actually happening or going to happen, but uh, you know, we see it down here in South Texas. I mean, I go to the mall, I go to places and people bring their entire family because they don't have air conditioning at home. So they just like walk around and the grocery store with eight people You know, because it's 105 degrees outside and at their house, it's probably like an oven. So why not? Let's just all go to the store at least for an hour and a half. We can be cool. So uh, I don't know if this is true, but, uh, you know, this this is not how a modern uh, industrial technological society should be thinking. And this is not something where, well, we just ran out of fuel and there's not enough supply. This is chosen. They chose to go down this path. They chose to do this. And um, that's what's fascinating to me. So, last but not least, Mr. Biden made his Middle East trip that was delayed for a while because he was too tired from some of his other things. He can't, doesn't have a lot of stamina now, but he went there, went to Israel, went to Saudi Arabia. And so one of the things I wanted to say here is, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, he's going to go to Saudi Arabia and he's going to, you know, get the Saudis to agree to produce more oil, to alleviate the pump prices. You know, we have an oil shortage, yada, yada, yada. And so this is just a short note that I saw, but I saw more articles about this. Uh, Saudi minister says, there was no discussion of oil production at the Jeddah summit. So I saw other things that, you know, yes, the Saudis are going to try to increase oil production but it's going to be over the next five years, not specific. They're not going to ramp up their excess supply because I think it's pretty apparent now, at least to me and many other analysts, that the OPEC doesn't have the spare capacity that they had, many people had thought they had. So this is another plate that's in the air. Another thing you need to keep into consideration when you're thinking about, yes, in the short term, can the monetary and sediment situation overcome the, Geological and uh, realities of not investing enough into new oil and gas. Yes, but as I showed, it, it doesn't stay there long because there's an insatiable appetite. You know, the longest trend in the history of mankind is the ascension of man, and that wants him to become, each person wants to become, have more conveniences, have more, you know, be more wealthy, have more comforts, and that all takes energy. Everything, Uh, is a derivative of energy uh, production and use. So if we restrict energy, restrict kilowatts, BTUs, whatever molecules, then we're going to have less economic development and less economic wealth and comforts. And uh, we're seeing that already in the West. All right, guys, that was kind of a long one. Um, Again, appreciate the, uh, the... Inputs, please like, subscribe, share, comment. Uh, It helps the channel. Uh, If you want to subscribe again, it's in the show notes. Uh, We appreciate that also. Uh, We are running a business here after all. And uh, this all sounds bad, but in the end, all things pass with time. And I predict that over time, things will get better. But uh, hey, this is not looking good right now. There are definite storm clouds on the horizon. And uh, I think, like I said, I think the upheavals are just starting politically, economically, and socially. We're starting to see it, you know, whether it's in developing countries, it's now even spreading to the developed world. All right, guys, that's it. We'll talk to you next week.